The Vine Caroline and Vera sat in the yard in the shade, shelling butter beans. I look at that trellis, said Caroline, and remember how Isaac and Walker argued about how wide it ought to be. Didn't Walker come along and add on to it after Isaac finished? Oh, yes, and of all the building they did, that trellis is the only thing that gives clear marks of who done what. Vera emptied shells into a basket and picked up a handful of beans from another basket. How'd it happen? More handfuls. Well, I asked Isaac to build it. Don't you remember? It was about the time the field hand died. Somewhere in there is when I planted that wisteria. Got it from Miss Sutton and planted it early of a morning and told Isaac to build a trellis. Well, when he finished, Walker told him it won't big enough, won't wide enough, and to widen it. Isaac didn't want to do it and argued with Walker to find until so finally Walker up and done it himself. And you can see it from the backside through the porch there where Isaac stops and Walker's takes up. I seen that, but I never remembered why it was that way. Whoever would have thought that I'd outlive Isaac and Caroline, said Caroline. I hope he died gentle. I do too. What if something happened to him and he went crazy and wandered off and is still alive? No, no, that belt buckle and them other things, they had to be right about it. At least they wrote a letter about Seton. It had been nice if we could have kept us all together out there in the graveyard. Vera pulled unshelled beans to the top of her pile. You know Papa was right about that trellis, though. It won't near wide enough. I'm kind of glad Isaac never knew. Never knew what? That Walker was right? I don't think we're going to finish these before dark. Is that a tick on that dog's ear? Come here, sailor. And the one lost in the war, said Walker, was Isaac. I tried to go in with him, said Ross, but Mama wouldn't let me. She wrestled me down to the ground and then locked me in the smokehouse so I couldn't go with Isaac. And then Isaac came to the door and told me I have to stay home and protect the family, which was a good thing in the end because that's exactly what I'd done with them Yankees. How's that? Well, a bunch of Yankees come through, and if I hadn't have been there, it's no telling what would have happened. We were working the fields and came in just before dark, and there's a whole bunch of them in the backyard. They had done stole meat and I don't know what all, and dot, dot, dot. Norley. I miss them both, but I miss Meredith the most. He writes me about once a month. I almost got Rhonda to let me go with her to meet him in Hawaii for Meredith's R&R, but we didn't have the money. Rhonda got pregnant while they were in Hawaii, which is great, and Meredith will be home in less than a year. I think Mark is going to stay in for 20 years. He's flying combat missions now. In his last letter, Meredith said that he wanted to name their new baby when it comes Float Plane Jack or Float Plane Chain. I'm dating this guy now that reminds me of Meredith a little bit. He's got the same curly hair and his eyes are the teeniest, tiniest bit crossed, so he looks crazy sometimes. His name is Barry Hargroves and he's a senior at East Carolina. Papa saw him once, just once, and now calls him a hippie. In his last letter, Meredith sent us these two little notices they'd just gotten. One was about leech bites. It was funny because Meredith had written on it. It said to tighten jacket cuffs to the wrists before entering streams, and Meredith wrote in the margin, too hot for any jacket. 
The notice said, apply insect repellent to uncovered portions of the body. And Meredith had written in, what insect repellent? The notice said, if leeches are found on the body, do not pull them off quickly as they will leave their heads in the bite and then cause infection. And Meredith had written, they won't leave their own heads. Their heads will be left. Ask a leech if he'll leave his head somewhere. This was the other notice. Meredith had written Haas at the end of every part. A. Remember, we are guests here. We make no demands and seek no special treatment. Ha. B. Join with the people. Understand their life. Use phrases from their language and honor their customs and laws. Ha ha. C. Treat women with politeness and respect. Ha ha ha. D. Make friends among the soldiers and common people. Ha ha ha. E. Always give the Vietnamese the right of way. Ha ha. F. Be alert to security and ready to react with your military skill. Ha ha. G. Do not attract attention by loud, rude, or unusual behavior. Ha 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 ha. H. Avoid separating ourselves from the people by a display of wealth or privilege. Wealth? Privilege? Ha. I. Above all else, we are members of the U.S. military forces on a difficult mission, responsible for all our official and personal actions. Reflect honor upon ourselves and the United States of America. Ha, ha, ha. Meredith writes in at the end that the guy who wrote all this was the same one who thinks leeches go around leaving their heads somewhere. I show all of Meredith's letters and stuff to Barry. He just shakes his head. Bliss. I had no idea how word would come. I had thought about an officer in a uniform driving up to Mr. Copeland's and asking for Rhonda, a phone call to us from Mildred or Rhonda, or a telegram to Miss Esther telling her that Mark was shot down. For some odd reason, I guess I'd never really thought about either one of them getting wounded. It was a phone call from Rhonda, who's living with Mildred, Mr. Copeland, and Nora Lee. Bliss, Meredith has been wounded by mine. We just got a telegram. It said it was serious. Call Thatcher and y'all come on over and I'll show you the telegram. It's just killed me. I throwed up. I called Thatcher and he said he'd come straight home. It was something that had always been possible, but that nobody would ever talk about. Nobody around here talks about what ifs, unless it's the weather, that's for sure. Thatcher came in from work. Don't they know how bad it is? He asked as soon as he got in the door. All I know is what Rhonda said, that it's serious. That's all she said. She said for us to come on over there. Thatcher rubbed his head across the top of his rubbed his hand across the top of his head and looked around. Well, at least he ain't dead. Let's go. Taylor was in the backyard. I called Sylvia, my neighbor, and asked her to keep him. She said fine. We dropped him off. I didn't want him to see all of us so upset, and Meredith has been sending him presents from all over. Mr. Copeland met us on the porch, and we walked into the living room together. Mildred was sitting on the couch. Rhonda and Nora Lee were sitting in chairs. We walked in, and Mr. Copeland stood at the door like he was waiting for somebody else. 
Nora Lee was holding a green pillow she always holds when she talks to her boyfriend on the phone. Her eyes were red. Everybody's eyes were red. It's right here, said Rhonda. She stood, picked up the telegram off the coffee table, and handed it to me. Then she turned her pregnant self around and walked to the window and looked out. It was the first telegram I'd ever seen, except in the movies. It said, Staff Sergeant Meredith Copeland has been wounded in the service of his country. Condition very serious but stable. Letter or phone call to follow. It had extra numbers and dates and so forth, and you couldn't tell who had sent it. It was said in such a way, like a menu or a church bulletin, that made me hate the paper it was on and whoever had written it, and the Marines, and Vietnam. Meredith had been saying in his letters that one dumb man writes everything for the Marines. I had him pictured in my head at a desk, and I felt like he had written this. It made me hate how Meredith could somehow be sucked over there, how some kind of vacuum could suck him over there to that place to have his body torn into no telling what kind of condition. Meredith. Maybe Mark could find out something, I said. Miss Esther's got that phone number. She can call Mark overseas, and then maybe he can find out something. Has anybody called her? We just got it, the telegram, said Mildred. We haven't called anybody except your house. And Albert went out to the shop and wrote it down in the notebook, I guess. She had a small towel of some sort in her hands and was wringing it. She looked at Albert. Is that what you did, Albert? Yeah. I'll call Esther now, he said. He was standing by the front door looking out and hadn't said the first word. He went to the kitchen where the phone was and we all sat there not talking. Well, at least he ain't dead, said Thatcher. He's too hard-headed for that. We all looked at him. Thatcher seemed littler than I'd ever known him. I can't explain it. I couldn't believe that's all he could think of to say. I guess he was trying to make everybody feel better, but it didn't work. I just want to know what happened, said Rhonda, how bad it is and what it is. She stood. Y'all want something to drink? I need something stiff, I said. Albert's got some whiskey. Everybody want some? I don't, said Norlee. Mr. Copeland, coming back in from the kitchen, met Rhonda in the doorway, stopped and backed up for her to take her pregnant self through. Then he came on in the living room. She's coming over, he said, and bringing Mark's phone number. We'll call him, see what he can find out. You can't fix no whiskey if she's coming over, said Nora Lee. That's right, said Mr. Copeland. Fix me one, said Mildred. This is different for crying out loud. Me too, said Rhonda. Fix me one too, I said. For everything there is a season. Nora Lee. What I thought about when I heard about it was when Meredith and I were up under the dashboard of the old DeSoto car we had, and a cramp caught him in his back, and he groaned like he was dying. I remembered it so clear. I was around six, and he was around, let's see, 14, and was showing me how to hide under the dashboard and reach up and press that button, which would make the gas cap pop open. We had had that car for a while. It was old even back then and Papa ordered the electric gas cap kit out of a book he was using to order something for the float plane. The ignition key had to be turned on for the button to work. Meredith would sneak the key off the refrigerator and go out and press that button over and over. Then he got this idea about making money from some of the kids in the neighborhood. 
they would pay him a nickel to say Allah Kazan while he was pointing toward the gas cap, which would then pop open because I'd be lying in the front dashboard, front floorboard, up under the dash and would reach up and press the button. It was when he was showing me how to stay out of sight and was up under the dash itself that the cramp caught him, and I thought for a second that he had been electrocuted in some way, and I was afraid to death he was dying. He let Mark in on the trick, and they got about four boys the first day, six or eight the second, and about fifteen the third, and were making a lot of money when Ann Esther called him and made him give all the money back. But on the last day, Mark hadn't made much money because Meredith had told me that when he, Meredith, coughed or sniffed after Mark said, Allah Kazam, then I shouldn't press the button. Mark got pretty frustrated. So when the news came, that's what I thought about, and I wondered if Meredith had groaned. Had he rolled over groaning on the ground or what? In my mind, I see all the ground over there as being dirt or mud. I can't imagine green grass. Poor Meredith. Though the main thing I thought about was that Meredith was the only one who ever carried me on his shoulders. None of the others hardly ever did, and he did it a bunch. And he gave me his arrowhead collection and all his broken bats that he had gotten from the high school team and nailed up and taped. I sold the bats for 50 cents apiece, but I've still got the arrowhead collection. When we got the news, I went in my room and called Barry and cried and cried and cried. He said he'd come over. But Aunt Esther and Bliss and Thatcher were coming, so I told him to wait. Thatcher is terrible to Barry. He won't say anything to him unless it's about Canada. One of Barry's buddies went to Canada. I wish Meredith had. I swear I do. Mark. Our barracks are in two rows, ten rooms per row facing each other. Between them is our bar, a two-room cabin called the Nail Hole. We've got a pet pig in a pen behind the nail hole named Napoleon. We dress him up once a week or so and let him roam around outside. I'm walking between the barracks toward the nail hole. It's dark except for outside building lights. The phone beside the latrine door next to my room rings. A tie boy is sitting beneath it polishing boots. He stands, answers it. I keep walking toward the nail hole. He lets the phone hang at the end of the cord and starts toward my room, sees me, and points to the phone. It's mother. There's a lot of static. They got a telegram. Meredith has been wounded, seriously. Can I see what I can find out? They're real worried. I'm to call them right back if I can. My mind jumps all around every which way. My arms start tingling and my lips feel numb. Meredith. Wounded. Maybe it's not too bad. I call the base operator. I need to get Da Nang, the base hospital. I get them. This is Lieutenant Mark uh, Copeland at Nakom Phenom. I'll lie. My brother, Mark Copeland, is there, wounded. Can you give me the name of his doctor? I'm transferred several times, and I finally get Meredith's doctor on the phone. This is Lieutenant Mark Copeland at Nakom Phenom. I need to find out about my brother, Meredith Copeland, who got wounded in the last day or two. I'm his brother. I listen. He finds the file and explains that Meredith was wounded by a mine, has a head injury, and that they had to, oh Lord, amputate his left arm and leg. He asks for my number. He'll call back in a day or two if there's any change. 
I hang up and look at the phone. I feel sick. I think back to the last time I talked to Meredith. He had called to tell me Rhonda was pregnant. I open the door to my room. There is this curtain of black cloth, wall to wall and ceiling to floor, in the middle of the room. Behind it are two beds. Buck, my roommate, a night flyer, is out. I close the door and flip the light switch, lighting the front half of the room. An electric clock is on my desk. It is 9.35. I sit in my chair and stare at the clock. The white second hand moves through the six, the seven, the eight, the nine. My arms tingle. I've got to call home and tell them. All of them are sitting there in the living room at Uncle Albert's or standing around the phone in the kitchen waiting for me to call. I see Meredith swinging out over the pond on the wisteria vine beside me in the float plane in the shop with his navy blue ball cap pulled tight on his head the way he always wore it. I lift my arms and put them on the desk, rest my head on my arms. Meredith. Rhonda answers. I tell her everything. No, I don't believe I want to talk to anyone else until next time. I'll call again as soon as I hear anything, but sometimes we can't get out on the phone line, and I'm really sorry about what happened, and that we'll all hope for the best. She starts crying. I look up at a floodlight, take a deep breath, and think, Dear God, let him be all right and not die. We say goodbye. I hang up and walk toward the nail hole. I'm in Uncle Albert's truck with Meredith, and he's driving across the snow on the ball field. He's skidding it all over the place. That left hand is crossing over the right one, spinning the steering wheel. His left foot is stomping the clutch pedal, and it's making that dull slam sound it always had. I go to the wall phone in the nail hole, find scheduling in the directory, call Captain Layton and explain. He says they've usually got something to be taken to Danong. I need to go, I say. Can he find something for me to take? He says, no problem. Tomorrow morning, I'll just have to check with Captain Coggins. I go back to the bar and order a drink. Captain Whitney is talking about anti-aircraft fire. And all of a sudden, 85 wolfed off at about 10 thou with this great big ball of black smoke. He puts his glass on the bar and shows the size with his hands. About that big, I said, wait a fucking minute. Two more pilots come in. One puts a baby duck, tan and fuzzy with brown spots, on the bar. It takes three or four steps, stops, and looks around unsteadily. I stand at the bar holding my drink. I press my palm against the cold glass. Who's duck? asks Whitney. Ours. Bought it from a shoeshine boy. Figured it'd make a good mascot. We can dress it up or something. We can fuck it, says Whitney. He grabs the duck and turns it upside down. Its legs stick up like short, thin pencils. He puts the duck's bottom in my face. What is it, Oakley? Male or female? You were raised on a farm, weren't you? I back off. Take a drink. Whitney places the duck back on the bar near Davenport and Fletcher, who are playing cut dice. The duck runs five or six feet and stops. John, the bartender, pours water from a pitcher into a clean ashtray and places it in front of the duck. It turns and waddles away. Its wings flick when the dice cup hits the bar. More pilots come in. One slaps a $5 bill onto the bar. I got $5, says Whitney won't bite that duck's head off. 
All right, shouts someone yells. Here's a five says he will. You can't eat the mascot, someone says. Napoleon's the mascot. Eat Napoleon, he's getting big enough. Taking bets here. John turns his back and begins washing drink glasses in soapy water. Bourbon and water, John. John wipes his hand on a towel and puts ice in a glass. You bite the fucking head off the duck, says Whitney to another pilot. I walk outside. A dull moon is low in the sky, three-fourths full, full enough to show the man in the moon looking down, surprised, open-mouthed. It's warm and breezy. Several pilots come toward me from across the lawn. A chant rises inside the bar. You can do it. You can do it. You can. Eat the duck. You can do it. You can do it. You can. Eat the duck. Then a sudden loud roar of cheers, scattered applause. The air conditioning in the hospital at Da Nang is out. Nobody is under covers. My father died in a hospital like this. I wonder if it was hot or cool or cold. A medic is taking me to Meredith. He tells me Meredith can't talk. Can't talk. We enter a ward. I scan and find the one with his left leg and arm missing. He is asleep in plain green bedclothes. Bottles hung on racks. Tubes are in his nose. The medic stops and points at him. At first, I don't recognize his face. I read the name on the foot of the bed to be sure. Meredith Ross Copeland, E3, USMC. The medic leaves. Meredith's left arm and leg are only half there, stubbed, bandaged, white. His pale, almost yellow face is turned to the side, the top and left side of his head bandaged, his mouth open, lips swollen. Dark brown circles are under both eyes, his right hand drawn drawn in toward his side, like the arm of someone who has had a stroke. I turn and walk away so I can get my breath. I turn back around and start toward Meredith, then stop. He can't talk. If he wakes up, I'll be drawn down into his eyes. I will be turned upside down, held there and shaken, and turned sideways and spun. So I turn my back on him and walk away to make it through this myself now. I stop and look up into a light in the ceiling, and a boy in a bed says, He ain't gonna make it, sir. Me and Danny over there already got money on it. I walk out of the room and into a hall. I can't remember which way to turn. I walk through an exit door into the sunshine. A wheelchair sits out there beside a wooden bench. Nobody is around. The sunlight catches on one of the wheelchair spokes, and it glints like a tiny sustained bolt of lightning.